Hello, welcome to series three of the Language and Power podcast. We're back for a mini series. Tom, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Michael. Nice to be back. Good, nice to see you. And we're also joined today by a special guest, Alex Kaveen, also from the University of Hull, one of my colleagues. Hi, Alex. Hi, Michael. Good, good to be on. Thanks for the invitation. It's our pleasure. Well, some of our audience know who we are, but do you want to say something about yourself? Tell us about your projects and what you're up to. At yeah, sure. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks, Michael. I work as a researcher at the University of Hull. So my, my area of, I don't want to say expertise, but sort of interest is in, in food systems and particularly seafood and, and sort of blue foods, if we're extending that to sort of wider freshwater systems and agriculture. So I, I sort of work part, working part-time at the university and also as a, I don't know what I call myself, <laughs> In the, I guess in the area of corporate social responsibility within, within the seafood industry as well. So I work for the UK seafood processor and do, and do little bits of consultancy and in, in sort of corporate governance and, and that side of things. So yeah, good to be, good to be on here. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. And so you've got your own, you have got your own expertise that you're, that you're bringing to the, to the episode. And I'll say something first about this series. So what we've done this time. For the series three is we've decided that we're going to make it a mini series. So we're not going to go for 10 episodes. I'm looking at Tom's eyes and he's more tired than I am. Maybe not as tired as I am, but we, we're kind of, we're both under time pressure as you can, as probably everyone who can imagine. So we're doing a mini series and this is in response to COP27. So our first series was about COP26 and we did a live or almost live kind of responses every day to, to things that were happening at, at COP26. This time we're going to do just a few episodes around a couple of themes and today's theme is sustainable consumption, sustainable production and we're going to have a guest on each time hopefully. And so we're not exactly talking about what happened at COP27 but we're talking about some of the issues that we think probably ought to have been discussed at COP27. So we'll, make, we'll be making a reference to COP27 that's just finished in, in Egypt, but with really thinking about the themes and today's theme is, is sustainable consumption, sustainable production. And we've got four articles, all from the Guardian newspaper in the UK that we're going to talk about. And each of them addresses some aspect of sustainable consumption in a different way and some of them more or less bring in a little bit about sustainable production but that's one of the questions we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll, we'll address anything that you two guys want to add in for our intro i think you more or less covered it there michael just yeah. as you say the four articles from the guardian but we're looking at three different sort of sections we're looking at a letter section an opinion piece by george monbiot and two two articles from the environmental science section so even though it's the same paper, we're getting different sort of voices in there, which is interesting to see what comes up. Yeah, absolutely. So the first, well, let, let, well so I think what, the, what we'll do in this episode is I'll just very briefly tell you what articles there are. The, the links will be in the description of the podcast if you want to have a look at those and you can follow on what we're saying. I'll very briefly introduce these articles and say a little bit about why we think that these are, are useful to compare with each other or to talk at talk about in the same episode read a little bit out but then we'll talk across all four because they are they are interlinked 
ideas. So the first one is an article from, from October this year. This, the headline in this article is cut meat consumption to two burgers a week to save planet study suggests. And I'll just read the first part of this meat consumption should be reduced to the equivalent of about two burgers a week in the developed world and public transport expanded about six times faster than at its current rate. If the world is to avoid the worst ravages of the climate crisis researchers suggested. So we'll have a look at some of the things that that brings up, but one of the clear issues there is, is that it's talking about consumption, consumption in the developed world and, and particularly kind of exhorting people to, to limit consumption of meat. And, and we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. Now, the second article that we also, that we want to look at is, is I think contrasts with that in some ways. It's also from the guardian. This one is from November this year, November, 2022. The headline here is enormous emissions gap between top 1% and poorest study highlights. And the first paragraph here, first couple of paragraphs, polluting elite responsible for the same amount of carbon dioxide in a year as, as poorest 10% are in more than two decades data shows. And it goes on to say the top 1% of earners in the UK are responsible for the same amount of carbon dioxide emissions in a single year as the bottom 10% over more than two decades, new data has shown. Again, we'll talk about that. The reason we want to just juxtapose those two is on the one hand, we've got all consumers in the developed world being asked to reduce and think about their own consumption in terms of sustainability. And this one suggesting, in fact, much of the pollution is created and caused by the activities of a very small number of people in terms of the UK emissions, top 1% of earners. So potential contrast there. The third article is by a well-known environmental writer, writer on the environment, George Monbiot in The Guardian. And the article here is entitled, Embrace what may, what may be the most important green technology ever. It could save us all. Now, does the, the opening paragraph doesn't tell us much. What he actually says, I'll, I'll read the third paragraph, precision fermentation is what he's talking about. Precision fermentation is a refined form of brewing. A means of multiplying microbes to create specific products has been used for many years to produce drugs and food additives, but now in several labs and a few factories, scientists are developing what could be a new generation of staple food. So what he's bringing into the, to the discussion for us is bringing things to the side of the production, what can be sustainable production. And then finally, we've got some letters that respond to Monbiot's article, also in The Guardian. Lab-grown food is no way to nourish the planet, is his headline there. The first correspondent, this is Sue Branford, says, I agree with George Monbiot that it's essential we curb the relentless expansion of industrial agriculture into, process, into precious ecosystems if Earth's life systems are to survive. What concerns me is Monbiot's solution. Close to despair at the failure of the world to take effective measures to curb this destruction, Monbiot is turning, turning to technical fixes such as precision fermentation, which can produce food without photosynthesis, practically from thin air. This means that 1,700 times less land is required to produce protein, etc., etc. But this high-tech solution presents dangers. Even though Monbiot says that the world would, um, that he would like poor countries all over the world to install fer fermentation tanks under local control, this seems unlikely. And, and she goes on. And there's other letters also that we might talk about there, also objecting to, to Monbiot's position on that. So those are our four articles. The links are in the, in the description. 
and we'll talk across the, the general themes that we, we find in those. Who'd like to kick us off? I can see Tom smiling and he's looking, he's doing. I'd like to defer to our guest speaker there, to, to give him first go, Alex. Sorry to drop you in it like that. No, no, so as, as some people in notes say, I mean, for me, I think there's probably three key, three key areas that sort of those four articles span across. One is sort of the technical fix being proposed by Mondrian. The second is, I, I guess, that behavioral change being suggested by the Eat Two Burgers Week. And I, I guess the third is so. Maybe links into that a little bit. So that concerning the production side of things around that need for wider systemic change and the role of government in in, in sort of you know, getting behind that and what what it needs to do from a policy uh, reg regulatory point point of view. So so yeah, that's sort of my initial initial thought really. Yeah, I think those those are those are the key issues, aren't they? It's what uh, how, how do we what are the systems by which and, and means and mechanisms by which we tackle the, the, the issues raised in these articles? And I don't think there's much complaint that there's an issue, a serious issue raised in each of those, you know, each of those articles, meat production, general lifestyle, and lifestyles being the point at which we put out the potential for technology or the dangers of technology, relying on technology to, to, to solve these problems. So all of those issues are there. I don't know, Tom, you've got a, you've got a take on these? Yeah, I think that's, that's essentially it and how, how they've been represented in different ways. And if we've talked previously about the distinction between production and consumption and how it's maybe a bit difficult to work out where responsibility lies, you know, I think we talked in previous episodes, the fact that maybe some of the, some, the poorer countries in the world have got large emissions that they've been asked to reduce, but that's actually for the production, but actually the consumption, what they're producing is consumed in, in the West. So, you know, yeah. where's the responsibility lie, the people who are making these products or the people who are consuming them and therefore being the agents in that. And a lot of it, I think there's some of the issues that I think come up in these different articles is where does the responsibility lie? And I think as Alex just sort of suggested, it's, is it with the individual consumer, in which case it becomes a lifestyle choice. They've got these choices open to them and they've got to choose the, we want to encourage them to choose the better one. That's very interesting because as soon as you come down to this distinction between the individual behavior and the systemic change, it becomes, there's a, there's a tension we see in these articles between having choice and not having choice, which is quite important. And it becomes a lifestyle choice. Now, I think just in this first article, they, it's actually from the environmental section, but yet the headline, cut meat consumption to two burgers a week to save planet, study suggests. That there's a little bit of lifestyle management language in there, you know, cut meat consumption to two burgers a week to fit into your summer bikini or your little black number at Christmas. You know, there's, it's got some of the language of that imperative. Cut meat consumption. Who is this imperative directed at? Well, theoretically, it's at the reader, but that's not always the case. We could have an article that says, cut oil emissions to save the world, and then the report would be directed at, you know, some anonymous organisation. But this is to two burgers a week. We know this isn't world consumption, so we're assuming this is very much directed at the individual. It's framing it as a lifestyle choice, but instead of fitting into your little black number, it's to, to, save, to save the planet. 
So very much framing this whole thing in a lifestyle choice. And interesting, the article starts about consumption and talks about consumption and talks about consumption. Opening paragraph is meat consumption should be reduced. Not you should reduce it now. It no longer addresses it, goes to the addressee, but then it ends up finishing off saying, your authors call for financial institutions to stop underwriting fossil fuel production. So it's sort of, there's a bit of slippage at the end when it goes to production and this authoritarian way that the banks shouldn't finance it anymore, but that becomes a, a lifestyle choice of the banks, which when you introduce yourself there, when you're talking about corporate social responsibility, Alex, I suppose this is the, the individual thing. This is different, isn't it? You've got individual behavior, then you've got government laws, but then you've got corporate sustainability, which is sort of treating the corporations as individuals. And now it's their responsibility, whether they underwrite fossil fuel production or not, again, rather than the state having to impose regulations, leaving it to the financial mm. institutions, because there's this fear of imposing regulations. It doesn't go down well in the UK. And, and of the letters we looked at, one of them very much says that you cannot take choice away from us. We will turn into a nightmare authoritarian state if you impose these rules. So in terms of encouraging policies and encouraging lifestyle choices, it's very difficult ground because we don't want to, to, to scare away the horses, as, as the phrase has it. So there's a, a lot of stuff comes up in this between individual as a infrastructural choice, lack of choice, and, and production and consumption. Those two mm. things sort of become intertwined in lots of interesting ways across the four articles or across the four, four extracts. Mm. Yeah. I think just approaching this with sort of my industry hat as well is <laughs> Raul is caught in in between sort of trying to do the right thing as as a business in terms of I I, I guess a, a dilemma that comes up quite a lot within the seafood industry where a lot of fish stocks are over fish and and still being and, and still being out of fish and sort of wider damages to marine ecosystems and and habitats and things is the extent to which you continue to engage with your suppliers on the basis of trying to bring positive change and improve things versus boycotting st stuff and, and I think that holds true for if you're looking at financialization and, and these invest big investment funds to to what extent do you pull out from sort of the big fossil fuel producers like, I guess, I don't think they're names, but you know, the big, big companies versus the extent to which you still maintain a share within that company and be sort of a critical voice to try and bring mm. change within the business. And for me, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. It's very challenging from the outside to, I guess, now, if you're holding a pension with the pension fund who invests in fossil fuels, so what, what the correct decision is on, on the basis of being able to bring around that sort of wider system, social, social responsible, responsible change. But yeah, I think with going back to the carbs, I think there's probably general consensus, but we're just moving too slowly every minute to tackle the worst impacts of, of climate and Things are just just not happening at the rate of change. We we need to sort of mitigate the worst consequences of, of climate change. Yeah, I, I've got a, a question, Alex. If just thinking about the fishing 
industry and you kind of know a bit about the the UK fishing industry. Looking at the first paragraph in this, so I'm going to try and make this into a question. On the first paragraph that Tom's already mentioned, meat consumption should be reduced to the equivalent of about two burgers a week in the developed world. Okay, if we take that, there's no, there's no social actors, you know, thinking about this from a discourse analysis point of view, no social actors. So we're kind of, the question is, well, who is it that's consuming this meat and who is it that's producing it? Who is it that's, that's kind of eating more than two burgers? You know, all of these kinds of questions and what it, what it brings to mind for me is this, the question of, is consumption always necessarily the point at which the damage is caused, you know, thinking about the other half of our title for this podcast, the, the production side, is it possible to produce meat in a way that does not damage the environment? And if you like, let's put it to kind of put it bluntly, if, if you're consuming meat, the damage has already been done. It was the production techniques that, that produced the, the cows and the methane and the agricultural practices. Surely that's where the damage is done. So, so this is a slight mismatch between thinking about what the point of emission is, if we're talking about carbon dioxide emissions or, me, or greenhouse gas emissions. And I wondered about the, 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 you know, your work in sustainable fisheries, if, if it's possible to, to produce fish sustainably, would the consumer notice and would the consumer have to do something different if the industry itself was already producing fish in a sustainable carbon neutral kind of way or it's an, an answerable question or not what do you think? it's a really interesting one i'll do my best to try and and divide divide some answers so with fisheries and, and other food sectors you have eco labels that Basically, they bet put on the final product packet to demonstrate to try to provide some assurance that the product's been done or produced in a sustainably manner. So, with fisheries and aquaculture, you have the Marine Stewardship Council Eco Label and Aquaculture Stewardship Council Eco Label. But I think from their research, it's only a small minority of consumer would actually buy products based on there being a natural weaker level on, on the products mm-hmm. and it, it sort of ties in be, before, I think generally trying try to move and, and there has been improvement within the seafood supply chain and sort of governance regime around ensuring that products produced in the UK, but also coming in to the UK are, are sort of produced at some minimum, minimum standards and the, when we when we were part of the EU, we were sort of part of the Union illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing regulation that would require some level of due diligence. I'm, I'm not saying it's foolproof, but it was trying to prevent legal products coming to the U, U, UK. I mean, it, I mean, it still is a big, a big challenge. But I think, I think for me, when you look at that two burger article i agree in, in terms of you sort of need you, you can't generalize at, at that level and i i think you, you need to look at i mean markets are complicated and with the seafood market i'm familiar with you'll have i know five or six different market cohorts that have 
different preferences and and different values and would prioritize their buying decisions based based on based on that i mean to me personally i i i'd say i'm probably more fish than than me i probably have one portion of meat a week but again it, it's so with these things that you can't really generalize um from a policy point of view to yeah I, I, yeah <clears throat> it's it's challenging but um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, let's go on to the, the other article, the kind of one that we paired with this, which is this one about enormous emissions, the gap between the top one percent and the poorest. So we, you know, in the in the burger article, we're talking about everybody in the in in the west in the developed world. It said reducing their consumption, but here we've got a article which is arguing that, in fact, the top one percent of earners in the UK are responsible for the same amount of carbon dioxide emissions in a single year as the bottom 10% over more than two decades, new data has shown. So what, what do we think about that as a, as a potential contrast or, or the content of this particular article? I found this one very interesting. I found all the use of statistics interesting because they're sort of inconsistent and not fully explained, even though it was on theoretically what would be the environmental page, isn't it? Which is, I suppose, supposed to be a scientific page, but the use of statistics is, is not robust. We're not quite sure if that 1% individually are using 26 times as much as the poorest 10% individually, or if it's the whole group that's using 26 times as much as that other whole group, which changes the statistics drastically. But also it changes from 10% to 20% or something halfway through the article. So it's, 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 it's an interesting article. In fact, there's lots and lots of statistics that keep being thrown out saying that this is a problem of the top earners, the richest population, which I think opens up a possibility, as you say, that it enables other people to have a choice because, you know, their, their decisions aren't as significant as the decisions of the top 1%. I, I, one of the things I'm a bit worried that this is a, something that will, will allow people to get, ri get rid of any feeling of responsibility. You know, the, we always hear this argument that China produces far more carbon dioxide than we do. Yeah, that's because it's a much bigger country, actually, per capita it produces less. And I find some of these statistics quite awkward. Or there was a debate on the television where a guy was talking about reopening coal fields in the UK, very, very opposite for today, on the grounds that we're only a small country or there are only small coal fields, then it, then it won't make a difference. Yeah, but if you can divide the world up into lots and lots of small units, and if they all increase a little bit, it's, there's some sort of failure to understand statistics somewhere along the ground that we don't understand as per capita and stuff like that, that things should be addressed. But I suppose it, it is that thing between uh, individual and group again, and what size of group are we talking about? And I, I know, so I found it a bit worrying from that point of view. I know you were, you were inter more interested in the fact that, you know, well, maybe we, you were thinking, I think when we were talking about this earlier, if it does come down to being authoritarian, uh, and we know from some of the responses, you know, that as soon as we start restricting choice, People are up in arms because, you know, they want the illusion of choice. And therefore, maybe some of the, the higher level action should be aimed at that 1% rather than reducing the choice of the 10%. I think you were, it was what the yeah. point you were most interested in, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, no, I was interested. I am interested. I, I tend to think that, it, that, that there's, there's more room to, you know, from a social point of view, there's more room to cut 
a little bit out of the 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 lifestyle choices of what's available to wealthy people than there is to people who yeah. are perhaps having to really really closely look at their budgets on what they can you know and mm. if if you've got if you've got very limited funds to spend and to buy food for yourself the imperative you don't really have a choice you're going to go for the, che the mm. cheapest yeah. rather than what's mm. labeled as eco whereas if you are quite wealthy i would imagine you've got far more scope to kind of buy the product that is um, a bit more expensive if it's if it's labeled as an you know if it's got an eco credential so i, I just it, uh, intuitively it feels as a wealthier people have more scope to to be ethical green consumers than than perhaps the, the rest was do and I, I did look at it and just to just to kind of add a little bit of more information on this I, I looked at the report that this newspaper article was based on it's by an organization called autonomy and the publication came out earlier in october 22 it's called a climate fund for climate action and and what they say about the, the, the top earners is that there are 620, I've got it right here, 670,000 people, according to them, fill this top 1% of earners. So it's not a small number of people. It's, you know, it's quite a large group. And I, I can't quite square those figures. I've, I've tried to find other sources for this information and other... Other sources that I've found suggest that the figure for the top 1% of earners is much lower than that. So I don't quite know how they've calculated 670,000, but that's the order of people that they're talking about. Yeah. So, um, it just makes to say, yeah, to do right. So this idea of choice and the illusion of choice is an important thing rhetorically, but when you've, you actually have people who don't have the choice. So it is an illusion. Yeah. It doesn't enter into the equation if people don't have the choice. And as I think that it reminded me of. You know, Billy Bragg's translation of the Internation Internationale, freedom is merely privilege extended unless enjoyed by mm. one and all. You know, giving people choice doesn't come to the equation if these people don't have a choice at all. It's just it's mm. just an illusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that I think that's right. I think it's important. I think I think there are there are big, big problems with the the article that we're looking at. It, it has got a bit of a, a sense of, of you know. Perhaps letting people off the hook, but you know, nonetheless, you know, I mean, there's there's a quote by a professor of international relations at the University of Sussex, who talks about the the polluting elite, uh, and he said on the eve of the climate crisis summit, COP27 in Egypt. So we had to talk about COP27, and there we are. And, and, uh, and staring down an unprecedented cost of living crisis, it is clear that we're not all in this together. Revenue raised from a carbon tax on the wealthiest top one percent of the population would have raised enough money to retrofit nearly 8 million homes, keeping us warm this winter and bringing down fuel bills while providing critical support for renewable energy and making us less dependent on Putin's gas. And I think that encapsulates something that feels appealing to me is not just saying that the 1% are producing more, but then suggesting an action yeah. that do something. That, I mean, a small tax on 1%, the top one percent. I don't know what level he's suggesting, but it, it surely it's the the kind of action doesn't cost those people a huge amount of discomfort. Yet, according to the quote, there produces quite significant effects. You know, allowing 
retrofitted homes for 8 million people. It's, yeah. Yeah. They're, 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 that's what I quite like about the quote, quote taking that, that social actor, but adding an action to it and, and describing that. So, uh, yeah. Do you have a comment, Alex? I'm, I'm thinking. Um, but I mean, I guess it ties in with a wider sort of ethical question around how sort of those who are really well paid in society, how much tax generally should we be taxing and, and should we have a world where sort of billionaires exist? Because some individuals just have obscene amounts of wealth that it, in a way it's just a, it's just a, a figure on, on sort of a balance sheet. It's, it's not actually in terms of a wider social good, but yeah, it's interesting. One of, one of the things that really interesting, I think is, is missing from the article or not really satisfactory is, is I'm, I'm wondering what is it that this 1% do that, that causes so much pollution? You know, if, if that ratio is correct and Tom's already kind of mentioned the, the, the problems with the, with the statistics, but if you've years of pollution from the top 1% equating to 26 years worth from, from a huge number of people at the other end of the income scale. What is it that they're doing this, this so much? And the only, the, 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 the article describes flying, driving large, expensive cars, owning multiple homes and traveling between them, eating a diet rich in meat and imports, buying more clothes and imported luxury goods are all reasons for the richest generating far higher carbon footprints. Now mm. it might be my lack of inf- if, imagination and it's probably that, but I, I still can't quite picture a, a bigger car. I know, it, I know it produces a lot more. It, it produces more emissions. Are we saying that the difference is that wealthy people have cars and poor people don't have cars and they use public transport? Is that, is that what's, what the big difference is there? I, I don't know. Is traveling between places, it is, it, it, it's so much more meat that it, that it's, that it becomes, you know, 26 times more polluting than, than poor people. It, it, it's, it's hard to, to picture for me. What mm. that, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I would not sort of diet. I, I think, I think again, diet woods and the extent to which you eat meat, I wouldn't for, for a country like the UK, I, I wouldn't say that would, I can't imagine that different between sort of the top percent significantly from the general, general population average, to be honest. I, I think for me, it would be, well, look, if they're doing 20, 20 plus flights, yeah. the, uh, using private jets and, and things like that, having clean clubs every single week. Or day. I, I mean, I, I don't know how rich live. I don't think many people do, but <laughs> I, it, yeah, it, I guess that's where the impact is, impact is coming in rather than, rather than food. It does make that yeah. a bit infuriating, doesn't it? Cause it targets an enemy as you like, and that, that can be yeah. good, but the lack there is, yes. And as Michael says, there's some suggestion, okay, taxing will, will solve some of the problem. But it'd be quite good to know some more details because when you have indeterminacy, people people like to protect the status quo, especially if they're more comfortable. And, you know, rationality very rarely enters into these things. If you can find a, a piece of news that says you can sustain your lifestyle, you will quote that as gospel 
and dismiss everything else. Now, I find this a little bit annoying because I'd like some more detail because I'm sure I've read other articles that say, forget flying plane, it's meat consumption that is the thing we've got to solve. And yet this doesn't seem to go there. And people use that as an excuse, well, I can carry on eating beef because it's not my problem. And then you should, you know, it's too easy to give people a way out. You know, they will, when there's a whole mass of statistics and a whole mass of contrary information coming at you, it's very easy for, for people to, to latch onto the bit that means they can make the choice to carry on exactly as they were before. So in a way, I find this article is only sort of doing half the job, but there's, there's other stuff yeah. to be done in terms of making it more concrete and really should maybe suggesting more concrete ways forward. Taxation is interesting. Taxation seems to be the capitalist model of forcing choice. I know you, you, you have things to say about nudge. You know, we, we won't stop you using petrol, but we're just going to tax it really highly. We're not going to stop you smoking. We're just going to tax it really highly. And it seems to be the capitalist fudge of, you know, stopping people doing stuff. But then, of course, it's the richer going around, I don't know, in, in SUVs, smoking cigars because they, they can afford these these crazy choices. But yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, I was interested what you said before. I said this idea of, you know, not lit, not getting rid of choice, but trying to, to nudge people, if I'm using the term correctly, to nudge people toward the more sustainable choice while still maintaining the illusion of, of, of choice that seems to be so important to, to people in the UK and similar places. Yeah, I think just thinking about where that comes in, but also I, I guess holding government to account as well in terms of the extent to which a should actually intervene in in some markets and, and things like that. Because I was sort of thinking about, okay, well, going back to the whole issue around sort of poorer consumers not really having that freedom of choice as a starting point. So in terms of introducing nudge theory there is sort of just, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to understand really where that would fit. But I, I, get, I think... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Look, looking at so an, an example of where maybe policy could change would be so if if you see with some national food strategy, so this was created by Henry Dimbleby, who who's who set up Leon Restaurants, which is a vegetarian, oh, vegetarian yeah. um, restaurant and chain, obviously in consultation with wide food industry and had quite a big support network to be this is really interesting. But one of the key things then is, is sort of that bridging that gap of the minute between junk food and health. So if if you were I think forward thinking as a government, where would you introduce policy, even subsidies, mm. to make healthier food more accessible? for people at lower incomes that would reduce health inequalities and arguably burden on the health service that would have probably net benefit from a taxpayer's point of view long-term. And, yeah. and for me, it's, it seems a, a bit nonsensical why you as a government wouldn't take forward quite a few of those recommendations put forward in that strategy. Well, um, what are those recommendations, Alex? I remember reading um, about that, but... Do you have the, some of those to hand? So there's four key recommendations. So yeah. the first one is escape the junk food cycle and protect the NHS. So there's three recommendations on the that. There's an introduce a sugar and salt reform reformulation tax, 
use some of the revenue to help get fresh fruit and vegetables to low-income families. Recommendation two that comes under that is introduce mandatory requiring for large food companies. And recommendation three, launch a new eat and learn initiative for schools. And then the, the other sort of three broad areas of the strategy are re, a reduced diet related inequality. So extending eligibility for free school meals, expand the healthy start program, trial a community eat well program, supporting those on low incomes to improve their diets. And then the sort of areas three and four around more the production side in terms of making best use of our land, sort of how, how you incentivize more environmentally responsible agriculture and uh, which, which I think, I think definitely taking forward to some extent in terms of looking at how current agriculture is subsidized and trying to incentivize land use patterns that would have a net benefit to broader biodiversity and things like that. And then four is around creating a long-term shift in our, our food culture, which to be honest, I haven't really got into a lot of detail yet, but I think there's some quite interesting ideas around that. Yeah. I think one of the things I like about, about, well, you know, the, the, the way that those recommendations are put there that you've, you've, you've described is that they they have a kind of positive orientation mm. where they, where they're kind of giving things or, or creating a situation or have that ambition to make things better for people. Whereas in the first article we looked at, it was about stopping doing something, you know, chastising mm. people. Don't do this. Don't do that. The second one, even though I've kind of got, you know, I personally got a bit of sympathy for, for thinking about how we could take some tax from wealthy people it is still about, well, you, you should stop doing the things you're doing with your big cars. You, you again, it's a kind of negative one where you've got here. It's about starting off with let's reduce food inequality. Let's make life better for, for people. And let's see what we can do with farmers to make our, help them to make better use of the land that we all kind of live in. And so it's, it's just got to, a very different starting point, it sounds to me, and a much more positive one. And it, it automatically feels more hopeful and something that you would like to, you know, like to follow up on and, and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's a good, a very different discursive kind of orientation just from the, the, the brief bits that we've, we've heard, I think. And that, that seems to be picked up by the, the, the writer of the, the third letter from that last section where George Mumbio, his language isn't, isn't really that negative. It's a negative thing he's, as you, in your terms, Michael, a negative thing he's proposing. And the reaction to that is quite interesting because the way that the, the, the writer of this letter reconstrues what Georges Monbiot has said, you go, if you just look at this very short letter, we've got brave new world. Well, we already know from literature that that's not a good thing. Dystopian future, mega factories churning out thousand and one varieties of artificial food kind of extremist solutions and, in the words of the letter writer, Chinese-style state control. So, so, you know, this is the reaction from one read, reader, admittedly, but as soon as you have this negative positional model, this is how people in Britain at least react. And, and you know, he talks about the alternatives as, in, in terms of, at least in countries where people are free to choose. You know, this, this is, we are a country in which people are free to choose, not a dystopian mega factory churning out horror state. And so you're right. I think as soon as you start telling these negative stories and telling people to stop doing this, there's an automatic kickback and people say, well, I can't do anything. So to praise it 
in, in positive terms, is going to get much more purchase with with, with the the public who, who we need to be on board. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. This is a this this one does does kind of react in in that way to to Mumbio's suggestion. I think it's interesting. Again, all of this debate is on a very very abstract level. I guess one of the things that's perhaps positive about the first article we looked at, it, it quantifies the amount of meat, tries to sort of suggest precisely how, what, what we're talking about, the equivalent of two burgers. Mm. I, I'm not sure that, that that's a particularly you know, useful image, but, but maybe that's just me. But, but the, again, the, the, this, the, the reaction in this letter is very, very general, a new world, dystopian future, mega factories, a thousand and one. It's all high. It's very, very hyperbolic, isn't it? it, it yeah. Whereas, yeah, in Monbiot's article itself, it's quite, he gives some quite precise figures, doesn't he? Yeah. For example, he talks about precision fermentation uses meth using methanol needs 1,700 times less land than the most efficient agricultural means of producing protein, soy grown in the U.S., this suggests it might use respectively 138,000 and 157,000 times less land than the least efficient means of beef and lamb production. So we've still got these big, big figures, but they're used in yeah. quite negative ways, but yeah. they're precise figures. And we could sort of yeah. say, wow, it's a bit more focused, isn't it? He's using statistics sparingly, but in, in high-impact places in this discussion, isn't he? Yeah, 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 he is. I, I mean, I, I've, when I when I read this, I was quite I was quite intrigued as a as a person who's interested in home brewing. I quite, kind of thought this, this precision fermentation, you know, kind of sounded interesting. He, I mean, I just want to bring bring one thing up. Mumbio sets this up as an argument, saying, you know, there are, there are four. Does he say four objections to mm. this this technology? The first is to what does he say? He says that the the the, 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 the yuck factor where people don't want to eat these microbes. I don't know what, I don't know whether, whether that's true. The yuck, he says the first is yuck bacteria. Well, tough, you eat them with every meal. And, and, I, and I think that's absolutely true. I, I don't find that, I wonder if there's a straw man kind of argument there. I, I don't I've seen know. individual things, but I don't know about many. And this might come up in the fish industry, Alex, as well, particularly with farmed fish or something, but you know, you ask, it depends how you ask the question. Would you, mm. would you eat meat that was produced in a Petri dish? And people say no. Mm. But this is more your area, Alex, I think. I think, yeah, I think a clever marketer would be able to sell it. I, I'm just thinking, thinking there's an example from the fishing industry. You can't, but basically there's a lot around changing the actual names of fish, even changing the name of fish from something that didn't sound that appetizing or cuddly to something a bit, a bit nicer sounding to, to people. And well, so even, historically, even, was it dogfish became uh, rock salmon, yeah. wasn't it? In fish and chip shops yeah, in the fifties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably a good, yeah, an example of that. Yeah, there's quite a few out there. I think you can always market, there'll always be, yeah, I guess the market and, and I think with clever marketing, you can, you can grow self market size for these and things. I think there's a wider, so for me, uh, just thinking about this, there's a wider question around governance, yeah. around 
okay, how is this technology it scaled up? Who who be interests behind it? <clears throat> and we don't want to get into the danger of sort of a similar situation with current big multinational food companies that their core interest is to remain in business and, and turn a big profit for for shareholders. I guess no matter what they claim they're doing on the social responsibility front. And, and for me, that, that's sort of the big question around um, food production going forward is sort of the whole governance system. And well, <clears throat> how, do, how, do you, how do you make food production technology more accessible to, to people? So it's not, it's not taken over by corporate interests. Sorry, I'm got a cough. That, I think that that's, that's true. And I think I, it, it reminds me of something that I, I'd noticed when reading this article is that, that, oh, if I can find it, it's not corporations that are making these things. It, it's, it's scientists in labs, you know, in, in a sense that the, the, according, you know, according to, to Monbiot's representation, it sounds very kind of, you know, if you like scientists, which I guess we probably do, we probably know some, <laughs> is that. It is is that that sounds all very kind of it's very academic sounding it's very using knowledge and 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 yeah science for 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 social good which all sounds to to I guess I guess to me sounds pretty good. He doesn't decide to talk about the corporations that that are sponsoring that technology and patenting that technology at the beginning. Later on, he does kind of yeah. raise one of the objections, but he sort of sets up the framing of this is that it's. So rather benign scientists doing things for the betterment of humanity, which, you know, maybe, maybe that's true, but maybe there are sort of large financial interests behind this looking, as you say, looking towards the bottom line rather than the first thing. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that he brings that in. I mean, we talked about erasure at the beginning and not giving the whole picture and getting rid of some aspects and including others. And I think a lot of George Monbiot's thing, he concentrates very much on a particular aspect of sustainability, and, and that is, you know, global warming, really. And this is picked up in one of the letters, I think the first letter contradicting this and talking about livelihood of small producers. And, you know, if you, get, if you make wholesale change, you get rid of the livelihood of small producers. He only addresses that in terms of the, the, the counter aspect, which is this, this fear and the spectre of the, the, you know, the multinational corporations, which is a good bogeyman for the Guardian is easily. But I think this is an interesting point as well, because this is the trouble of, from a discourse point of view, when, when you're discussing sustainability, very famously it refers to, you know, social sustainability, cultural sustainability, environmental sustainability, and economic yeah. sustainability. And you have to talk about them all at once. And if you erase any of those, you've got a very incomplete argument. And I think this is often the problem with George Monbiot, is he, he, he is so convinced that we've got to do this for the planet, which we have, that he, he doesn't address those other elements. He erases them from the argument generally. And that means it's hard for other people to, to connect. And also because people only can think on a certain scale. If you say, you know, when I go to the supermarket, if I've got this choice, I can think about that. I can relate to that. Tell people that the world's going to blow up in 20 years and they won't believe you. Well, they just ignore it because it's too frightening. And so it's to do with the scale of your where you live and what choices you are sensibly involved in rather than these other, oh, that's up for the politicians or the scientists to solve. And so it's got to be relatable, as you say about the two beef burgers is in some way not very relatable to me. If it was bacon, it would be much closer to my heart. 
but you've got to make it relatable to people's experience. But also think about the real consequences of we cannot expect meat producers just to voluntarily fall on their swords to save the planet. It isn't going to happen. And so how do we go about solving it in, in different ways? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's absolutely spot on. Yeah. And, and nice to bring that back to discourse as well, Tom. Well, can I finish on my little anecdote then, please? My little well, Larry on, then, yes. anecdote. He didn't tell it to me personally over dinner. I wish he had. And we're talking about the choice and the importance of this illusion of choice. I suppose it's connected to things like the American dream and all these things. We like to think we're agentive in our own lives and that we have got choices. So very famously, Lawrence Olivier and his wife used to travel on the Brighton Bell between London and, and, and Brighton. And the, the breakfast menu was reduced. There used to be kippers on the menu to bring in the fisheries again. And kippers were taken off the menu. And Laurence Olivier started a big protest about this and got it all over the papers. And kippers were eventually reintroduced onto the menu. And as he was traveling up to London the next time, the, the waiter came up to him and said, of course, there will be kippers for you, Sir Laurence. To which Laurence Olivier replied, no, I can't stand kippers. I just like having the choice. And I think we are all a little bit in that. We like the choice, even if it's not real. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. We we could we do, well that's what that's what we've been brought into, isn't it? We 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 do like that idea of choice, even if it's not not particularly wide or broad or or whatever. Yeah, although I do know people who hate choice, so <laughs> true. Yeah, it's too difficult. <clears throat> but it brings back to Alex's point as well. I mean, I was saying it in a light-hearted way, but how real is choice for people who can't afford the alternatives and mm. stuff like that? So this whole notion of choice and what it means in our society is something that's got to be questioned quite 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 a deep way. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, shall we wrap things up? Well, thank you very much for our first episode on sustainable production, sustainable consumption, and lots of different ideas in there. I guess we've kind of hopefully started starting some kind of conversations on that. We've by no means had the last word on it, but Tom, thanks very much. Alex, thank you very, very much thanks, Alex. Yeah, for thank being you. with us. Yeah, and thank you. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's, it's my first podcast, so it's the <laughs> baptism of fire, but I've enjoyed it. It's been good. You're going to have to listen to your own voice. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> okay, right. So thank you to everyone for listening, and we'll have a couple more in this series coming up shortly. And next one, we will offer you a choice, and that is you can either listen or not. Bye. Bye. Okay, thank you. Bye.